Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There was a particular incident that happened. Uh, Tayo, I was down in um, Monroe, Louisiana, which is, uh, just to give you a context, is where David Duke had his headquarters when he ran for governor of Louisiana. It's pretty old, or certainly was at that point, pretty old South. <laughs> and I was doing a workshop, a two-day workshop for a newspaper down there. And on the first day of the workshop, there was a lot of conversation. Mostly the breakdown was between black and white folks. There weren't a lot of others in the group at that time. Um, and uh, there was a lot of conversation about some of the stuff that had happened in the community. Just a lot of the African-American folks in the group were sharing their stories. And, you know, to, stories not unlike things you might hear or have heard from other parts of the country in those, in those times. But there was one young man in the group who, who he was a young white man, I'd say in his early 30s maybe, who was a pressman. He was, uh, he worked the presses. So he's, you know, blue collar guy, you know, flannel shirt and, and jeans. And he didn't say much the first day. He wasn't, you know, wasn't negative or anything, but just very quiet. And then on the second morning, about an hour before, um, <clears throat> excuse me, an hour before lunch, he raises his hand. And, and uh, you know, as you know, when you're in front of a group and you hear from somebody you haven't heard from before, it's always a good thing. So I called on him and, and he starts to share. And he says, I have to say that I, I, I'm feeling a bit conflicted by this conversation. I said, well, what's the conflict about? You know, and he starts talking. The whole time he's looking at his lap and he says, well, I grew up in such and such. And he mentions a rural area outside of the city, the name of which I forget at this time. Um, and says, you know, my, my daddy and my granddaddy were my heroes growing up. They taught me to fish, taught me to hunt, taught me what it was to be a man. They were the best men I ever knew. Granddaddy was the pastor of our church. And, and then he stops. And uh, for long enough where I was about to ask him, what's your point? When he looks up and he's got tears in his eyes. And he says, but they were in the clamp. And the whole room inhaled. And he said, then he said something, and I'll never forget this line. He said, it wasn't much talked about, but it wasn't much hidden either. And he goes on to talk about how he feels conflicted because on one hand, he, he trusts um, his fellow workers and he likes them. And so when they talk about these things that they've experienced, he, he knows that they're being honest. But on the other hand, for him to accept it means that his father and his grandfather were terrible people. And he knows that they know that they were the best men he ever met or ever knew. And um, and so that created this inner conflict with him. And and and, you know, there was something about it that really touched me because the guy was so authentic, so honest and, and brave to be sharing this in front of the room. And so whereas in those days we had sort of been trained to how to teach, show him that they really were bad people. Instead, I just pulled up a chair and, and said, you know, let's just sit here and talk about this for a minute. And so we sat in front of the room and had a conversation for about an hour. How you did? How you did? What an interesting story we just heard. That was just a little clip of what the whole interview is. 
Now, Howard Ross, who I'm interviewing, is a hero of mine. He's someone I've looked up to, especially in the field that I'm in, which really dives into how to make safe environments, create inclusive spaces, and also work in fostering diversity while, you know, reflecting on our biases. And his career is one that is incredible. Uh, I love how he puts things into 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 words, especially when he talks about the divisive times that we have. We're talking about his book and how. He really thinks that our need to connect sometimes can create this division, division amongst ourselves, amongst our our, um, our peers, and you know, in, in our institutions as well. It's very, very similar to a lot of what I talk about when I when I discuss using your difference to make a difference. So I know for a fact you're going to learn something. But I also think hearing him apply stories and attach stories rather to a lot of concepts that many of you might have heard will allow you to place yourself into different environments and maybe consider things from an alternate from an alternate reality. Okay, so his book is going to be in the show notes. You should definitely check it out. This is one that I, I it's not a recommendation I make lightly. I don't make any recommendation lightly, but this particular book I think is very very necessary. Also, Use Your Difference to Make a Difference is coming out three weeks from now three weeks from now but you can pre-order that uh i'm so excited it's my first book i i i, I it's about connecting across cultures in divisive times and communicating effectively in a cross-cultural world a lot of you have been so supportive with your pre-orders i've been told by my publishers that every pre-order counts towards your first week sales so i would love it if, if as many of you can uh you know hit up amazon or wherever books are sold uh the, the book title should be listed and just you know pre-order it will be truly truly appreciated right i love you all and with that being said enjoy the episode Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today's guest is one that I've been excited about. I was, I was so excited when uh, his publicist sent me an email asking if Howard could be on the show, and I was like, I know Howard. I've, I've read his books, and so we're, we're going to be talking about his latest book, Our Search for Belonging, How the Need for Connection is Tearing Our Culture Apart. Now, a little bit about Howard. He's a lifelong social justice advocate and the founding partner of Cook Ross. He's considered one of the world's seminal thought leaders on identifying and addressing unconscious bias. Howard has delivered programs in 47 states and over 40 countries to audiences including Fortune 500 companies and major institutions within healthcare, government, and nonprofit sectors. We are obviously talking about today's world as a reflection of today's divisive times, and we're going to figure out how to explore bridges and increase uh, our, our bridge building in polarized world. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Tyre. It's great to be with you. The pleasure is mine. So I normally like giving a background to, you know, the audience. You, before you became this foremost authority on unconscious bias, can you give us an idea of what led you down this path? What were things in your youth and your early life that really made you curious about ways to help people understand their biases? Sure, sure. Yeah, I really appreciate that because I think it's so important when we're looking at um, these kinds of issues that we do understand where we came from. And for me, um, I think it was deeply influenced by by two major things. You know, one is um, I'm Jewish and my family came from Eastern Europe and we had enormous loss during the Holocaust. We know that 43 members of our family were killed in two days, August 2nd and 3rd, 1942, when the Nazis came into the village in the western Ukraine that my grandfather came from and killed all but 100 of the 6,000 Jews that lived there. 
Jeez. Um, and and that was just one incident. We know that dozens <laughs> of other people were lost. And so, you know, so I being born in January 1951, um, I grew up in the, in the immediate shadow of that, you know, heard, hearing the whispers and the stories and, you know, family members who just literally disappeared. Um, and the other piece was that um, I had stream of activism on both sides of my family. My grandfather on my mother's side was the person who organized the group that purchased and outfitted the Exodus ship in Baltimore Harbor and was a real, um, you know, we did all kinds of stuff to help the resistance and to help rescue Jewish children um, from from the Nazis. And my grandmother on my father's side was an organizer for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. So so the two messages we got growing up were that terrible things can happen and you have a responsibility to do something about it. So it kind of became the family business in a way. My older sister became one of our nation's leading immigration lawyers until she retired just about two years ago. My younger sister um, did work with social justice organizations all over the world, including being Marion Wright Edelman's fundraiser at the Children's Defense Fund for almost 15 years. So um, I started my career as a teacher working with um, children in depressed communities, mostly um, children of color, um, and then eventually took over running a school and found that nothing that I knew about managing people worked anymore. So I went back and started to study organizational development and change. And the two things came together in the mid 80s when big diversity movement started. And I was doing organizational development work. And so pretty soon started to find out that organizations needed the very things they were throwing tear gas at us for 15 years before. So, you know, so it's interesting <laughs> the way these things work out, Tyler. It is interesting. It is interesting. And someone who's, you know, was born in the late 80s, I, I've heard and read the history about what that time was like. And I've also heard how people are starting to liken today's world, today's climate to the time we just expressed. Would you agree or disagree with that? Oh, I think it's very similar in a lot of ways. And um, I think that uh, if anything, I think the separation that we're experiencing now is even more intense than it was during that tumultuous time of the 60s. Because, you know, if you look at if you look at what was going on back then, while we know that we had two very distinct points of view, it wasn't nearly as um, drawn up in terms of uh, party identity. So you had, you know, for example, you had Southern Democrats who were against civil rights. You had Northern Republicans who were for civil rights, even though most Democrats were for civil rights and most Republicans were more more resistant to it. Um, you had during anti-war days, you know, you had some anti-war Republicans, you had some pro-war Democrats, even though, again, the thrust of it was the opposite. So I think now a lot of it having to do with media, um, we're much more bifurcated and, and it's, it's almost, you know, we've moved from sort of a bell curve, if you will, to what I call a dumbbell curve with everybody on the extremes and nobody in the middle. And it makes it much harder for us to, to get ourselves out of the mess that we're in. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree uh, with you more. And I remember as I was doing research for this is because when I first came to you to, to New York and I started to to really explore diversity and inclusion work, I had come across a workshop. It was right around, I think, the time of your book, Everyday Bias. And I, I remember you having these examples in, 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 in the workshop. I think I was watching a YouTube then uh, and I could see how the audience was so surprised by their biases and and. Mm -hmm. These, you know, biases are things that we as humans have, but a lot of times it seems that. People, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that I think. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You, you, you blanked out. No, 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 go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I was going to say, I think, look, I think that's true. And I, I mean, one of the challenges we've had is that um, 
you know, we've tended to associate bias with badness. Um, you know, in fact, in fact, the way I started getting involved in the bias conversation um, and in being interested in it was really out of these sort of moments um, where something didn't quite make sense. I'll give, I'll give you one example, because just for a little frame of reference, you know, in the early work we did in diversity now 35 years ago when I started, you know, we basically did it with a two by four. And, you know, we, we kind of try to beat some sense into people, if you will. And, you know, you tell people all the terrible things are happening and you throw in a little dose of shame and guilt. And if somebody cries, it was very cathartic for everybody, you know, mostly aimed at white men or white people or whatever. Um, but we began to find at some point that, um, that the problem with that was while in the immediacy of the classroom, people could sometimes have breakthroughs in the long run, often there was a backlash because when you make people feel guilty, um, it's not actually a sustainable emotion for most people. What ends up happening is they either turn against themselves and start to feel bad about themselves, which doesn't empower anybody, or they begin to get resentful about the people who are making them feel guilty. And so repeatedly, I would run into people who would, you know, a month after a training, let's say, and I'd say, how was it? They would say, oh, it's okay, but don't ever make me do it again. You know, so it was, it was a good recipe for getting people not to do stupid stuff. Um, but it was not a recipe for inclusion because it often left people more gun shy about talking about the subject. But the big yeah. breakthrough, I think, there was a particular incident that happened. Uh, Tayo, I was down in um, Monroe, Louisiana, which is, uh, just to give you a context, is where David Duke had his headquarters when he ran for governor of Louisiana. It's pretty old, or certainly was at that point, pretty old South. <clears throat> and I was doing a workshop, a two-day workshop for a newspaper down there. And on the first day of the workshop, there was a lot of conversation. Mostly the breakdown was between black and white folks. There weren't a lot of others in the group at that time. Um, and uh, there was a lot of conversation about some of the stuff that had happened in the community. A lot of the African-American folks in the group were sharing their stories and, you know, stories not unlike things you might hear or have heard from other parts of the country in those in those times. But there was one young man in the group who, who he was a young white man, I'd say in his early 30s, maybe, who was a pressman. He was uh, he worked the presses. So, he's you know, blue collar guy, you know, flannel shirt and, and jeans. And he didn't say much the first day. He wasn't, you know, wasn't negative or anything, but just very quiet. And then on the second morning, about an hour before, um, <clears throat> excuse me, an hour before lunch, he raises his hand. And, and uh, you know, as you know, when you're in front of a group and you hear from somebody you haven't heard from before, it's always a good thing. So I called on him and, and he starts to share. And he says, I have to say that I, I, I'm feeling a bit conflicted by this conversation. I said, well, what's the conflict about, you know? And he starts talking the whole time he's looking at his lap and he says, well, I grew up in such and such. And he mentions a rural area outside of the city, the name of which I forget at this time um, and says, you know, my, my daddy, and my granddaddy, and my heroes growing up taught me to fish, taught me to hunt, taught me what it was to be a man. They were the best men I ever knew. Granddaddy was the pastor of our church. And and then he stops. And uh, for long enough where I was about to ask him, what's your point? When he looks up and he's got tears in his eyes and he says, but they were in the clan. And the whole room inhaled. And he said, and then he said something, I'll never forget this line. He said, it wasn't much talked about, but it wasn't much hidden either. And he goes on to talk about how he feels conflicted because on one hand, he, he trusts um, his fellow workers and he likes them. And so when they talk about these things that they've experienced, he, he knows that they're being honest. But on the other hand, for him to accept it means that his father and his grandfather were terrible people. And he knows that they know that they were the best men he ever met or ever knew. 
And, um, and so that created this inner conflict with him. And, 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 you know, there was something about it that really touched me because the guy was so authentic, so honest and, and brave to be sharing this in front of the room. And so, whereas in those days we had sort of been trained to how to teach, show him that they really were bad people. Instead, I just pulled up a chair and, and said, you know, let's just sit here and talk about this for a minute. And so we sat in front of the room and had a conversation for about an hour about what this was like for him and how it affected his life and how he made decisions based on that. And, and we finished the conversation for lunch and people actually applauded him. Um, I think just for his courage and his openness. And then I look at it, the lunch uh, group and there, they have like box lunches in the room. So they're sitting together talking and there he is not 18 inches from the strongest African-American male voice in the room. And the two of them are just deeply engaged with each other. And I looked at that Tayo, and I said to myself, whatever I did to make that happen, I got to do more of, you know, um, <laughs> and, and figure out how to do that. And then on, I remember the sitting in the airplane on the way home. And it's so funny, cause this is now we're talking now 25 years ago, 20 years ago. I can remember it like it was yesterday sitting on an airplane and just being so, um, sort of contemplative about this conversation and, and saying to myself, there are two things that I was really left with. One is we've been doing this work as if, if we taught people to be good people, they do the right thing. But this guy was clearly a good guy. I mean, he's the kind of guy you'd like to have as a next door neighbor, wonderful guy, you know, and yet he had these attitudes, some of these attitudes that just didn't sync with mine. So yeah. clearly there was something more than being a good person here. And the second thing was, and this was a really a gut punch for me, to say to myself, if I had grown up in his narrative, if I had grown up in his story, would I see the world any different than he did? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't really say with any honesty that I would. And so, so that really set me back on my heels. And it started me on the path to figure out, well, if this isn't about conscious choice, then what it's, what's it about? And that's where I started to look in some of the research about, you know, the newer research that was coming out in the mid nineties about unconscious bias and, you know, led me to study different models of identity and, you know, Freudian and Jungian models of identity, and even looking at some Eastern traditions like Buddhism and how they look at identity. And that's what really started me. And then from there to the neuro and cognitive science behind it, you know, it's just sort of, you know, I'm, I'm a bit ADD. So it's, it's like, <laughs> if you put me one place, I'm immediately looking for what's next to it, you know? And yeah. so, um, and so that was what led, led to the breakthroughs that we had around that work. No, and this really ties into a lot of what you believe. You believe that organizations must provide trainings in interpersonal areas, uh, such as diversity, inclusion, and engage from different points of view. But you believe that it should be done through dialogue rather than debate. And I, as you were giving that example, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, that this is one of the challenges that we have. And certainly we see it. You know, we see it in what's going on in our world right now. I mean, you know, just to give you an example, when uh, uh, when I wrote Search for Belonging, and, and I want to acknowledge also um, uh, John Robert Tartaglione, who um, a mentee of mine, who, who helped me tremendously with the book and, and provided a lot of the research and, and some of the writing as well. So uh, John Robert did a, a fabulous job on that. Um, but when we started to do that, one of the things I did was I realized that I couldn't understand, you know, Trump voters in my case, because I'm, I'm on the other side of the political equation, uh, if I didn't talk to them. And so I went out and I interviewed over a hundred people. It's now well over a hundred people. Um, you know, at the time I wrote the book, I think it was in their 60 or 70 range, but now it's been well over a hundred who voted for president Trump. And it was incredibly enlightening, um, to me because, um, you know, what I found was that there's no stereotype over there, that the whole wide range of people ranging from people who were the gung ho MAGA people who we see on TV with the hats and the signs and all of that to <clears throat> a large number of people who basically said, you know, I held my nose and voted for him because I couldn't vote for her. In fact, 56% of the people I talked to 
said that they voted more against Clinton than they voted for Trump. Um, but the real thing that struck me, Sayo, was that um, when I talked to a lot of my friends who are on my side of the political equation and talked to them about this research I was doing, how many of them said, why are you wasting time talking to those idiots? Or something mm-hmm. to that effect, and that was that was really stunning to me, and, and and disappointing, frankly. That that you know, I mean, we don't have to agree with people to try to understand them, and I think that one of the challenges is that if we only, especially now when we get our news through social media, and so we block things that we don't want to see, or we only watch, you know, one news station but not that other news station, whichever one it is, and this happens on both sides of the political equation. So yeah. pretty soon we live in our echo chambers of our own creation where we're propagandizing ourselves with more of the same every day. And um, that doesn't lead to great understanding. It leads more to uh, stereotyping people and, and objectifying them on either, on either side of the political equation. So then you have these different, you know, these these narratives where for people, some people on the right, everybody on the left hates America. And for some people on the left, everybody on the right is a Ku Klux Klansman or some variation on that. And, yeah. and that's obviously not true. Um, and nonetheless, we act like it is. And, and and that doesn't allow us to bust through the echo chambers, like you say, and you get confirmation bias because you're surrounded by people who are sharing things to confirm your beliefs. And that further solidifies what you think. And the more you have people in your environment that are like you, which is a natural human thing to surround yourself with people like you, the the more uh, emboldened you feel. And it becomes more. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it becomes more of a surprise because I've done similar things to you in the sense of trying to understand another side is literally my job. And right. Yeah. And, and I, I do get the same responses. I mean, I'm a big fan of Trevor Noah. And I know one time he brought um, what's her name? Uh, it was, she was she used to be she was a young blonde lady that worked at the Blaze. Very controversial if you're liberal. But Tommy Lauren, Tommy. Yeah, Tommy Lauren. He brought on the show and and there was a huge uproar about why would you give someone that platform? And now you hear Trevor. He says he was I mean, if you really watched it, he was not, you know, he was poking holes at argument. But he was also um, making sure that she expressed her points while being firm in his beliefs. But there were a lot of people that hated that approach because the argument there is that you are spreading hate and you're using your platform to do that same thing. What do you say to that? Well, I I tend to be somebody who believes in dialogue and believes in keeping channels open. And I also believe you can't win people over if you can't talk to them. So, for example, I was very disappointed to see that the Democratic Party didn't want to do any of their debates on Fox News. I mean, for me, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, not that I, it's not that I don't have an opinion. You know, I don't I'm, it's not that I don't dislike Fox News sometimes but, or most of the time. But but <laughs> my point is, you know, as, as somebody who's done social justice organizing my whole life and I was trained by Saul Linsky and all these, you know, I did all that kind of stuff. You know, if, if there's anything you want, it's to get in front of people on the other side so you can share your point of view with them so that they're not only hearing um caricatures of you through their own grapevine. And I think that's more true now than ever before. And I think you're seeing with some of the some of the candidates, for example, who have gone on there. When Bernie Sanders went on, he got a really positive response to his ideas on health care. When Pete Buttigieg got went on Right. Yeah. yeah. They, you know, so a number of them are realizing that. So I, I, I don't, I don't really accept this notion that the way to resolve it with people is to isolate them. Now, no, I think there's no question. I'm, there are differences. There's a difference between somebody like, a, you know, uh, Tommy Lauren, who, you know, I don't agree with, but 
you know, I don't, I'm not going to pretend I like her or point of view, nor do I think she's, you know, all that credible in terms of how she expresses it. But nonetheless, really different to have somebody like her on versus a Richard Spencer or a David Duke, you know, Um, you know, and I think that we have to make these distinctions. It's, It's really important for us to make these distinctions. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a fair point. And I, I think it's 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 and the thing with, with Tommy, it, it's it's so interesting because she's so young in, in, yeah. in the sense of that. And so, you know, there's a sense that, you know, what it's your you can sort of allow someone to expose themselves to a different perspective. I, I, I do want to I do want to uh, double down on this. So you talk about different points of view. How then do you create safe spaces to engage with these different points of view? Because I think some of the fear is. If you know, is that well? Would I be ridiculed? Would I be shamed? Would I be yelled at? So how can you do that? You know, in an institution, in a school, in the workplace, in the family, you know, in a gathering. How can you create those safe spaces? Well, I think one of the things that I found is really helpful, and and it's it was really stunning to me when I started doing it because because you know going back to what I, how I shared with you that I stumbled around this work because I do feel like to some degree I was much more like a two year old running downhill trying to stay on my feet than than you know than somebody who was like you know hey I want to learn about this it was more like, <laughs> wow look at this and look at this my my natural curiosity sort of drew me but one of the things we found was that you know when you when when I used to go in the room and I'd start talking to people and particularly people in leadership who are mostly white men about these issues there was a lot of defensiveness and and we started talking about the issues and they would get really defensive and um, but that once I started to learn about the um, both the social and the, and the biological aspects of bias uh, that we started with saying, let's look at how the mind works. Let's look at how we make decisions, how we draw our value system. Where do our value systems come from? How does that form the world in the way we see it? And how does it let one person see the world one way and another person see the world another way? And we could do exercises that had people see how that plays out. And then when we then came back to talk about the issue, people didn't feel demonized. They felt like they were at least people understood that this is what they were taught to do throughout their lives, that right. that this this young man I was talking about in Monroe, Louisiana, you know, he, he, he was taught through his life narrative to see the world in a particular way. It wasn't because he was a bad person. And when people start to realize that you're relating to them, not as bad people, but just people with different ideas that you might disagree with, they're much more open then to talk about things. And it brings up a lot of greater sense of empathy. The other thing I began to notice was how much, how often people in the diversity space, those of us who are practitioners, sometimes can come across like, oh, our stuff don't smell. You know, we're the good people and we're here to fix you bad people, as opposed to recognizing that bias is something every human being has. And so I started to share stories about my own biases, you know, blind right. spots that I'd had. And, and, so people began to feel more comfortable because they say, okay, he's not saying he's better than us. He's just inviting us to look at it just like he's looking at it. And yeah. so all of those kinds of things started to break down some of those barriers and give people a different context to look at it in other than them versus us. I love that. So what I'm hearing is you have to create scenarios where people are able to understand and dissect their own frames of references so that they can understand that. And simultaneously, if you're the practitioner or you're the one that's trying to extend an olive branch, be vulnerable in showing sides of yourself that, you know, show that you do also have moments where you have acted based on your bias and not, you know, necessarily in front of all the information. Because that way, if if someone sees how they got to that conclusion themselves based on maybe prompts you give them, they can then even understand like, oh, wow, that that makes sense. I, I didn't realize it that I didn't realize that from your point of view, that's how you were seeing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, one of the things I, I, I've had many conversations with people about the fact that, you know, when, when we think about the world, it, the way the world is to us, um, that 
is, is really a mythology, that the world yes. isn't a particular way. The world <laughs> is an interpretation based on our experience. You and it I, suppose, you know, one of us, you know, one of us looks at a, a, a roller coaster. I use this often as a simple example. One of us looks at a roller coaster and says, all oh, right, roller coasters, man, that's thrilling. That's exciting. And another person looks at that exact same roller coaster and says, that's terrifying. <laughs> you know, well, the roller coaster hasn't changed. You know, it's the same yeah. roller coaster. It's just this inanimate object called roller coaster. Um, but yeah. our interpretation makes it different. And we do the same thing with people. I mean, look, look at the yeah. last week, Tayo. Yeah. I mean, look at this whole thing with with um, the whole uh, issue between with President Trump's tweeting about Elijah Cummings and different interpretations of whether or not it was racist and whether or not Baltimore is a terrible city. You know, all these conversations, you could see it played out right before our eyes. It, yeah. People are, it's like there's a, people have a different sky, color sky in each of their worlds. Yeah. We're emotionally, emotionally charged. And, and it's sometimes if you don't have the right way to work through your biases, if you're not, if you, if you haven't learned how to process emotions, if you haven't learned how to understand uh, how uh, things come from different perspectives, or even to your point, uh, have a dialogue, your natural response is to be reactive. And then the more you react, the more other people feel like they need to be defensive. And then, you know, you just go further party. I, I watch news and I see it happen. You know, it, we have a very debate culture with sports and with news. It's even if it's manufactured or real, it's you have this take, that person has that take, the loudest person in the voice can get in, in, in a room maybe has like a one minute soundbite that goes on YouTube, becomes viral, and then you don't remember what the actual topic was. And it's more about the takedown. And and, and that's my bigger fear with all with a lot of what I see today. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And look, I think there's something else at the heart of this, which goes beyond diversity and inclusion and really to the breakthroughs that we're having now in the cognitive and neurosciences, which is that human beings don't think the way we think we think. Um, I know that's a funny sentence. My English teacher wouldn't have liked it, but I do. But the, um, but the, um, but the truth is that we think that we're rational, but we're actually rationalizing. Um, most human attitudes, beliefs, behaviors come not from our rational mind. They start with our, and we can, by the way, we can look at this now using functional magnetic resonating imagery, and we can see how the brain functions. So it's just not speculative. We can actually see which part of the brain gets triggered first. And what we know is that we first have our emotional reactions, and then we gather, largely gather evidence to support that emotional reaction. So if you meet somebody and you feel uncomfortable with them for some reason or another, you will start automatically looking for the things that are making you feeling uncomfortable. And you know, we, we see what we look for and we look for what we know. So, um, so you will usually find something that fits that description. And, and, you know, when we take that into people, if I've got stereotypes around, let's say African-American men, um, that say that, that have been teaching me through these stereotypes, through the images I see on TV and the comments people make that African-American men are dangerous and then, or black men are dangerous. And then I meet you for the first time, um, that part of my system, which says, you know, danger, Will Robinson, watch out now, be careful, puts up caution. And so I'm coming at you a little bit distant, a little bit more cautious, not really open, not really friendly. And that triggers perhaps in you then uh oh, I know the way white men have treated me in the past. Right. Um, this guy is being kind of funny with me. I hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Better watch out because maybe he's that way. So then you get a little bit more distant, which then triggers more from me. And you can see the rabbit hole we go down into. And so both of our reactions um, are triggering part of this <clears throat> dynamic. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not saying that the power dynamic is the same with both, because obviously when you're part of a dominant group, you've got more social power behind that mindset, but it can show up in some of the incidents we've seen. So if we think about Ferguson, for example, you know, Michael Brown sees this police officer, Darren Wilson. We know Darren Wilson said in his interview subsequently, I knew they didn't like us, he said, when he talked about going into that neighborhood, talking about the black community there and the white police. Um, and so he's already on alert. You know, his amygdala has been hijacked. He's, he, his fear center of the brain is, is leading the show. And then here comes Michael Brown, this 18-year-old kid who knows friends and maybe even himself have been harassed by the white police. He sees a white police officer. And so he's getting charged. And these two things come together. And we'll never know what actually happened there because one of the people is dead. But, um, but at that moment, oil hits water and the whole thing explodes. And, um, and, and it's important for us to recognize the system of biases that are re and reactions on both sides are, are all contributing to this. Absolutely. And, and I'm so glad you brought that up because I think people sometimes uh, they hear bias and they think, oh, it's just a workplace thing or it's just something. And I'm t I tell people it literally informs every decision you make. The friends you, you, you decide to be friends with the schools you go to, how you use language, the movies you watch, everything, you know, it, it, it informs your frame of reference. And if you're not being persistent with your self-awareness, if you're not even being, if you're not able to be critical of, of yourself when you need to be, or to be someone that regularly examines behaviors, you're not going to be able to actually move beyond your echo chambers because you're going to be informed by your environment and what you've been told to do. And a lot of people are to use, I will take your rationalizing ra rational brain and rationalizing further. A lot of us are not taught to be critical thinkers. And, and I think we're, we're conditioned. <laughs> and so, and so it's, it's very rare that you find someone come up with original thought. Everybody, if you even, you know, why do you believe what you believe? My parents told me I read it somewhere. I went to school, but, but then why mm -hmm. do you believe? I, I, well, I don't know. I mean, I was told this, uh, tell me this. And, you know, I, I do this all the time in my workshops and people are always surprised by how little original thought that they actually have. It's still, and it's just interesting how that plays into everything we do today. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I, I I'd say, uh, you know, yeah, to everything you just said. And, and <laughs> we add, we add another piece to it. A lot of the research that we did for our search for belonging is that human beings need to fit into groups in order yes. to survive. Um, yes. We're oriented that way. You know, Maslow's hierarchy, was, Maslow created his hierarchy back in 1943, and it's incredibly valuable to modern psychology. And most of sure, our listeners know that basically what Maslow said was you have to have certain needs met before other needs, starting with physiological needs and then safety and then belonging and then um, the self uh, uh, 
self-esteem and the self-actualization is the top right. one. You know, basically what Maslow was saying was if you're starving to death, you're not going to be sitting around contemplating life. You're going to be out searching for food. Right. Um, but it turns out now that we know by looking at the neurocog research that Maslow is wrong, that belonging is actually our key human need. And that mm-hmm. uh, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because the most vulnerable time of a human being's existence is infancy. Yes. And, you know, the only way we survive infancy is if there's somebody there who we belong to, somebody who's taking care of us. And that's true for the first several years of our lives as human beings. And so the first imprint we get as human beings is I exist because you exist. And on top of that, we know from a social imperative, if you go back, you know, just a couple of hundred years ago, because because the whole notion of people being able to function individually in society is, is a relatively new phenomenon just in the last 150, 200 years. Historically, the only way people survived was in groups. If you live by yourself, the chances of you surviving were slim to none because slim if you none. got sick, you got injured, that was it, you know? So, so this, this need to conform, this need to believe what other people believe, to go along with what other people go along with is, is inherent in, in all of us. And, and everybody who's listening to us has had an example of a time when they went along with the group and did something they wouldn't normally do or said something they wouldn't normally say or didn't say something that they thought they should say because they didn't want to be excluded from that group. You know, we all have had those experiences Absolutely. because this need to fit in is so critical to human existence. Yeah, no, I, I love this. I love this. And and, and I want to segue into how this plays into the workplace. So recruiting, hiring, yeah. onboarding and performance reviews. How do, how, do, how do we remove these type of biases in those type of in those areas? Well, I think, first of all, I want to pick up on something you said earlier, which is to recognize that the dynamics we're talking about are not diversity dynamics. They're they're dynamics of human thought that happens human to be, in, in our case applied to diversity. But the same conversations about bias. For example, Daniel Kahneman won his Nobel Prize because the work he and Amos Tversky did on looking at how this dealt, deals with things like investment decisions and, and financial decisions. The whole field of, of behavioral economics now has sprung up around this. And so, so um, but I think where we get back to the organization, you know, we look at all the decisions we make organizationally, and we know they're just ripe with opportunities for us to make these kind of quick, instinctive decisions that are often, often bias-driven. So let's give you, let me give you just an example. Let's say I've got two people who come in to do an interview with me. You know, we'll call one Susan and the other one, John, you know, um, you know, John comes in in the morning. Um, I meet him and I have this I have this immediate feeling, something about this guy I'd like, you know, now. Now, even that feeling and everybody who's listening has had that happen with somebody. You know, you have that immediate feeling, somebody, you know, to, ah, I like this guy, you know. Well, if you think about it, I've only known him for five seconds at that time. So how could it possibly be about him? You know, I don't even know anything about him yet. He's obviously yeah. triggering a memory of somebody else. Maybe he reminds me of a cousin I liked or a guy I played ball with in high school or whatever it was, you know. But but nonetheless, coming from that positive vibe, I ask him the first question. He hems and haws a little bit because he's a little bit nervous. Without even thinking about it, I say, John, look, take a breath. Let me ask the question again. You know, I know you're a little nervous. And I give him a second chance. So he, So now he's feeling a little bit safer because I seem like a good guy and I'm not putting pressure on him. And so he relaxes a little bit. He answers the question. I'm making eye contact. I laugh at his jokes. The interview goes great. You know, six hours later, Susan comes in and let's say it's not even one of those times that I have a negative hit on her, you know, because sometimes your sleaze alarm goes off and you have sort of a negative first impression. But let's just say I'm distracted. You know, my mind's on something else. I just came out of a meeting and maybe I'm still thinking about the other meeting. I ask her the first question of the interview and she hems and haw a little bit. And this time, I just sit there with my hands crossed or even worse, I make one of those quick glances at my watch that you're not supposed to see. 
And now she's sweating bullets. And based on that five second difference in my interaction, these interviews go two completely different ways. Yeah. And the next day you say to me, how did it go? And I say, well, he's really great. Easy to talk to. I think he'd fit in well. She's okay. And I have no idea that I had contributed anything to those conversations. In fact, if you put me on a lie detector test, I would tell you that I interviewed them fairly and I would pass that test because I have no conscious idea that anything I did contributed to it. And so what we're trying to do is to get people to look at all of the various um, uh, decision points in the organization and look at how you can slow down decision making. And I, I like to say um, constructive uncertainty because we're not talking about paralysis by analysis here. We're not saying, you know, grind everything to a halt, but to just take a pause every now and again and say, okay, what are the factors that are contributing to my reaction to this person? If I, if I had an immediate positive um, vibe about them, make a note of that because they didn't do anything to earn it necessarily in the first five seconds. You know, for example, when I'm working with teachers, um, and I've done a lot of work in education because my first career was as an edu educator, I'll tell them one of the great exercises they can do is the first day when the students are in the room for the first time, give the students some kind of a writing assignment on their so that they can be busy. And then just go around and make a mental note of your first impression of each of the students. This one looks like trouble. This one looks like they got their act together. This one looks smart. This one looks, and just to trust your gut and let whatever comes up, come up. And then to be aware that you're bringing that into the relationship before you've ever been had a chance to really interact with these folks. I, you know, I, I love that so much because that, that is so true. And I, I do want to talk about maybe suggestions you have to slow down those decision makings because there are certain things mm -hmm. that come into play here where people, extroverts tend to have a better chance than introverts because, yes. you know, they're able to have that. And then for, we, and we value extroverts in our culture. Absolutely. Right. And at the expense of introverts and, and we sort of just, uh, miss that, miss out on those opportunities. But then there's also this question of intuition. And I've talked to a lot of people yes. who, who have intuition and it's, it's, it's a tricky conversation to have with someone where you're bringing up bias and you're saying, Hey, I know you have a gut feeling <laughs> about this guy and uh, or this lady, but have you considered that it could be your bias? And like, no, my intuition never, ever steers me wrong. And that's how I thought. That's how I grew up. And that's how I came here. What do you say when that comes into play where, you know, it's an entrepreneur who has built like a billion dollar company. He did everything through, uh, through his intuition. And he's like, what are you talking about? I always trust my gut. Yeah, that's tricky there. Yeah. Well, well, I think, you know, I mean, first of all, the science says they're wrong. Um, let's be really clear about that. I mean, what science says, you know, what the science says is that is that what actually happens in most cases that that first of all, what a lot of psychologists believe intuition is, is just memory recall. And that and that we um, we're recalling things that that feel right about something because it reminds us of this person or reminds us of that person. But, um, you know, there's a uh, there's a lot of research now that shows that a lot of these quick decisions, a lot of these gut decisions are actually wrong. But what tends to happen is once we make a decision, confirmation bias goes into place. So, so once I've made a decision, there's a part of me that wants to feel like I made the right decision. So I begin to look for all the positive aspects of that decision. And I ignore a lot of the negative aspects of that decision. So if, for example, I hire somebody and they go to work for somebody else uh, in my team and that person starts complaining about the person, but I was really hiring this person and, and was the person who, is, who really was instigating the hiring, I'm going to find some way to defend him and maybe even start to say, well, maybe the problem is this person who's complaining about them. 
you know, I will find some way to justify it or I'll say, or I'll say, Oh, he's young, but he's a good guy. He'll learn or whatever it is. You know, I, I, I continue to justify that. And the same thing on the negative side, if, if, if I don't like somebody, um, uh, or I'm disinclined to like them, I'll be looking for the negative aspects of them that I can then justify my disliking them with. And, and I think that, you know, when, when we look at the actual notion of it, um, that gut reactions are valuable, um, in certain circumstances. This is what Malcolm Gladwell's book Blink was all about. You know, now a lot of people read Gladwell's book Blink and they felt, thought what he was saying was, God, I trust your gut. But that's not what he was saying at all. What he was saying was that once people have achieved mastery, once people have achieved a certain level of mastery, their gut instinct is is then powerful. It does take over because there's enough background information so that those quick decisions are informed. Um, but but for the most part, and so the per, a person like the person you're describing, a person who created a billion dollar company, may in fact be somebody who's achieved that kind of mastery. But for the most part, we need to check our gut decisions with facts to be sure that we're using the right criteria. Inform your gut to trust your gut. That's a well put. I like that. I- I just, I just, I just, I just came up with that. Um, okay, so then, I, I, if this is what I normally recommend, and please tell me if you agree. I, I when they're you're recruiting, hiring, onboarding, I always recommend that you know if you're going to have a standard set of questions, make sure that those are similar, right? Or make sure you have a team of people that can that from different levels in the company that can actually help you out with the, with the hiring process. Because sometimes if it's just you. There's there's certain biases that come to play. You could be looking at several GPAs and one is higher or lower and then you just dismiss that person. And so making sure that there are those types of check and balances is very important because, you know, it, we, we all know those times when you just want to fill a position and it's been tough and to find the right person and someone that gives you just something positive is the person you go to. So if you have someone else to sort of point something out that you may be blind to it's very important to uh to make sure that you put yourself in that scenario look absolutely i couldn't agree with you more i think that i think that there are a number of things we can do when you're making choices i think one is to make sure you get the information that you need excuse me one the first one is to be sure you know the criteria you're using and you're sharing the same criteria the second is so look at what information do I need to make this decision well a third one is to be sure that the structure that you're using for the interaction is is aligned in all the cases. In other words, you know, if I spend, you know, I, let's say I interview one person for a half an hour at nine o'clock in the morning when I'm really sharp or for an hour at nine o'clock in the morning when I'm really sharp, but then the second person, I have 45 minutes at lunch in the middle of a noisy cafeteria. And then the third person is late in the afternoon, you know, over Skype with a connection that's spotty, you know, all of those factors are going to be there. And I asking the same questions to everybody so that I can compare apples to apples, you know, um, and, and also to check, you know, what's my reaction to this person? Where's that reaction coming from? So all of that stuff's important because, you know, I've seen so many examples after, you know, 35 years of working in all these different places with literally hundreds of thousands of people, maybe close to a million now, um, that uh, so many times the decisions we make um, are, are bad decisions. And, um, and then, and, and often, as you said, it's because of a rush to judgment. Well, we gotta get somebody hired. Well, they're not perfect, but we gotta get somebody in the job. So you hire somebody who's not good, perfect for the job, and six months later, you're hiring somebody else, or three months later, you're hiring somebody else. And, and yeah. you know, and, and, you know, so often I've seen that happen where, where rushing um, leads to bad decisions that actually cost you much more time in the long run than you take a little extra time to get the right person. Uh, I, I'm loving this conversation. I, and I, <laughs> this is amazing. So you obviously you wrote this book, this 
incredible book, Our Search for Belonging, How the Need for Connection is Tearing Our Culture Apart. I want to dive into why you felt like this was a timely book, because you have several examples in your book that exemplify the polarization. But I want to allow you to use your words to really just tell me what, tell the audience rather why this book is is necessary. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, like so many other things in my life, you know, I, I've always been sort of led by my own curiosity. And um, and this is no different. You know, I've been somebody who has prided myself throughout my life at trying very hard. I'm not perfect. And I lose my temper sometimes in conversations and say things that I apologize for like everybody else. But I've, but I've always prided myself on trying to really understand another person's point of view. A lot of it has to do with my family upbringing and that we were really encouraged to do that. Um, and, uh, and yet I found myself when this last political campaign started in 2015 or so, um, found myself, uh, being incredibly judgmental uh, much more so than I ever had before. And and that was curious to me. It's like, why am I being so reactive? And so, you know, and you know, look up and I saw it all around me. And so, uh, you know, so that was really the spark. Why is it that we tribalize like this? What's happening that we're being so tribal here? And, and when I started to poke into that, I started to say, well, it's just fascinating information about what it is about tribes that has us feel um, safe, protected, and much more powerful than when we're out here by ourselves. And, uh, and it so happened that, um, that John Robert at the time, um, had gone over to, uh, London and he was studying at the, uh, London school of economics. He was studying the neuroscience of decision-making came back to visit. And as I said, he had been a mentee of mine, had worked with me at Cook Ross for a while. And, um, it says, let me show you this cool stuff that I've been doing research on. And it was the exact same stuff that I was beginning to do research on from another point of view. And so that's what's kind of prompted us to say, we ought to get this stuff together and write a book about it because it's incredibly important. And, and as you say, we see dramatic examples of how it's showing up right now in our society. Yeah. No, please give us some examples with Whole Foods and Cracker Barrel Old Country. Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty fascinating study, isn't it? That's a, this is yeah. a study that was done by... The uh, Cook Political Report, um, and uh, um, it's been done. Oh gosh, it, it started back in 1992 during the Clinton and Bush, the Bush one election. And uh, what they did was they began to look at uh, the communities that surround Whole Foods markets and Cracker Barrel stores because they're so distinctive. Whole Foods markets, of course, for people who don't know Whole Foods, it's sort of a you know it's a health foods kind of a market. It tends to be in liberal communities and Cracker Barrel family restaurants tend to be in conservative parts of the country. And so they thought it would be a good place to track how those communities were voting. And, and when they first started doing the study in 1992, um, there was about a 20 point difference. In other words, uh, Whole Foods communities tended to vote 20 percent more for Clinton. Um, the Cracker Barrel communities tended to vote 20 percent more for Bush. And, and then they followed it every four years. Um, up through the last election. And every year it began to increase to the point where in the 2016 election, the difference was 54%. So what that means is in, in the more liberal enclaves um, around Whole Foods markets, people were 54% more likely to vote Democratic than they were Republican. And the reverse was true in these conservative outlets. So what that says to us is we're now living in segregated political enclaves. You know, more than likely your next door neighbor 
depending upon where you live, of course, more than likely your next door neighbor believes the thing, same things that you do. Your the, the, the parents of your, the kids that your children go to school with believe the same thing. The, the people you run into at the grocery store or the barbershop or the beauty parlor or the doctor's office or wherever else likely believe the same you do. Not, uh, not everybody, not all the time, of course, but far more likely than that they're different. And so we begin to feel this bubble around us, this echo chamber around us, where we hear the same things, see the same things. And then when we toss social media into that, which is where people now get a lot of our information, um, formats in Twitter and in Facebook and in other places where people you know, call out the people who don't agree with them. So people block people who disagree with them, or they only friend people who do agree with them. And then, of course, you throw in another layer of what media do we watch? Well, if you watch Fox News and I watch MSNBC, we're getting a completely different point of view, right? And so, um, and so all of these things have led to this increasing polarization. As I think I said earlier, we've moved from a bell curve to a dumbbell curve where everything's on the end and nothing's in the middle. And it actually, by a lot of people, is considered to be um, traitorous almost if you're willing to even have a civil conversation with somebody from the other side. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a fascinating study. And, that, and I just wanted you to, to share that. Sure. So, yeah. <laughs> it all comes back to us being, we need to be more aware of certain things and we have to actually practice asking courageous questions, uh, you know, those, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the things that we've accepted as normal, as the standard, as, as, as expected, and we have to go to unexpected and making sure we challenge all those thinking. So, um, yeah. well, you know, Tayo, I think one of the things that we're learning and uh, have learned about the biology of it is that the human brain is pretty lazy. Um, you know, Facts. we, we, we want to, and, and there's a reason for that because the brain consumes so much of our body's energy. Um, that we're always looking to conserve energy. We're always looking to find ways to make decisions faster, cleaner, neater, without having to go through all the trouble because it saves us brain energy to do that. And so quick decisions are easier on our brain than slower, more contemplative decisions. Um, so rather than sitting around and thinking about something, I'll just trust my gut and I'll say, well, this person, you know, I don't particularly like this person, so, you know, I'll move on to the next person. <laughs> but the reality is if we know the value of diversity and inclusion, we know that it comes from being and sharing ideas that are different from us, um, then we recognize that sometimes it's a person we don't feel comfortable with who might be the best addition to our way of thinking. And, and this is one of the challenges that I think we've got right now, not just on the conservative side, but also on the liberal side. It, you know, it really bothers me when I see people saying, no, we're not going to let this person speak, or we're not going to, um, you know, we're going to shut down this conversation because um, that for me is the opposite of liberalism. That's illiberalism, you know, and, and, and I think in the long run, um, we forget that, you know, we may shut them down, but the more we shut them down, the more it gives them permission to shut us down. And pretty soon we're in a situation we are now where nobody on either side wants to listen to the other. Um, and there's just not a lot of, there's not a lot of hope for us in that. No, I, I think I heard someone, I, yeah, I heard someone, this was Mac Maron on his podcast. He was talking to Brene Brown and he said, the Republican Party has become the um, never apologize party and the Democratic Party has, has become the never forgive party. And so yes. the, when you look That's for perfection, well yeah. yeah, so the never forgive versus never apologize, it, it's I, I'm always wonder because I hear people, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a citizen. I'm someone that, that has worked and traveled in different parts of the world. And I hear, well, I can't I can't vote for her. Or I can't vote for him because of this. And I'm always wondering, how do we get away from the bigger picture? 
of yeah. of what the thing is and and allow your biases to inform what the choice is. You know, sometimes people are just thinking small uh, in a very short sighted way. And it's, it's very troubling uh, just because. It, it, these are big decisions. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Not- and, and it's really, <clears throat> you know, you really see it. I mean, of course, you know, there's an old saying that um, um, Republicans fall in line and Democrats fall in love. I mean, they think that, you know, Republicans have a, uh, and conservatives have a tendency to, to be much more pragmatic in their decision making. I think we saw this with, with, with Trump, you know, that during the primary people said, that, you know, Lindsey Graham called him a xenophobic racist. And now, of course, he's his best friend. Um, you know, and I think that this tends to happen, whereas Democrats, you know, you look at what I mean, let's look what's going on with the primary. You know, uh, Kamala Harris is not good for some people because when she was a prosecutor, she, oh, my God, prosecuted people. You know, um, right. Beto O'Rourke's no good because when he was running in Texas, he took money from oil companies as if there's ever any other money in Texas. You know, um, you know, Bernie's not good because he didn't he didn't stop his campaign soon enough last time. And Elizabeth Warren's no good because of this, you know, Native American heritage claim. And we could go through, you know, how people are, Biden is no good because 40 years ago he made a decision about busing and, you know, or whatever. And and so it's, I think there's something really in that, that, that we, we set these ridiculously high standards, um, that nobody can possibly meet. And then when the person who we want loses, now we've, we've dug ourselves so deeply in our hatred of the other, yeah. Um, that that it's hard for us to that it's hard for us to say okay I'm going to vote for him or her anyway. Yeah, I think absolutely. certainly we saw that with some of the people who voted for Jill Stein last time. Absolutely, and that's why I really love your point about not only just opening people's frames of reference, but also practicing that vulnerability because we, we can't set a high standard of perfection when no one is perfect. So, and if you don't yeah. create create this this narrative that it's okay to be imperfect, but we will accept you anyway, because we are also imperfect. It becomes, we start putting all our expectations, unfair expectations on people that are just like us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they have to live up to those expectations. And then it becomes, they have to make up a lie to hide their shadow sides. And then when those shadow sides come out, it's, they look even more uh, untrustworthy and it's perpetuating this stereotype or bias that you have already of them. And, and it's just this cycle where we're not actually having your point dialogue. So, um, yeah. yeah. And, and look, I, I think that it's, I think it's, you know, this is one of the reasons why I found that, that one of the best things that I can do with people is to, is to start by sharing some of my own biases because, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, from the we know from the New Testament when Jesus said he is without who is without sin, cast the first stone. You know, um, once people begin to look at their own biases and to recognize that it's not just those people have bias, but I have it, too. Um, then all of a sudden I can bring a little bit more compassion. And this is where, you know, um, Brene's work is so important. The work Brene Brown is doing is so important where she's where she's saying, you know, when we bring that vulnerability, when we're willing to share our stories and our narrative, when we're willing to admit that we have our own blind spots. We can be much more sensitive to the blind spots of other people because we realize it doesn't make you a bad person to have a blind spot, whether that blind spot is around race, gender or whatever. Now, if you turn that into conscious hate, you know, we have to deal with that. And I'm not saying we don't deal with it, but most very few people, if we go back to organizational life, very few people in my experience wake up in the morning and wring their hands and say, how can I suppress women and people of color today? You know, that's not the way it happens. It happens much more along the lines of that interview example that I gave. And, and if we can give people a chance to look at this without feeling like they're being demonized, they often, in my experience, 
more than any other thing that I've exposed, I've tried relative to diversity and inclusion, they will often say, wow, yeah, I can see where I'm doing that. Well, that's well said. Well, Howard, where can we find your book? Um, well, it's, it's it's pretty much everywhere. You know, you go on Amazon and, and get it there very easily or any of the, the, the online bookstores. You can, uh, it's in Kindle and uh, so um, you can get it that way. And people can also reach me at uh, howardjross.com. Um, and uh, if they want to reach out to me. Absolutely. So. And I'll make sure I put all that in the show notes. Uh, but before we go, I have to ask you my final question, which is my mission statement reframed as a question. How do you, Howard, use your difference to make a difference? You know, in my case, I think that, um, you know, the difference that I offer, uh, it's been interesting to watch over time, is uh, being a, a cisgendered straight white male and uh, doing this work. And, um, you know, when I started doing the work, there were very few people like me doing the work. And a lot of times people say, what are you doing here? You know, why are you here? It's like as if diversity is only about one particular group. Um, but I think that uh, one of the things I've tried to do is to is to look at, you know, how does how does being a white man affect the way we look at the world? And I think often when you're in a dominant group like this, um, it's it's particularly invisible. You know, it's much easier to see how a non-dominant identity affects us. You know, when you're a person of color or when you're a white person, I mean, excuse me, a white woman or a man or woman of color, when you're an LGBTQ person or something else, it's pretty easy to see how that difference shapes your experience of life. And I think sometimes we're blind to our own experience when, um, when we're in the dominant group. And so one of the things I try to do is to help people understand how things like privilege have played out in our lives and that are not personal, but are systemic and that we benefit from it, whether we'd like to or not. Absolutely. I love that. Ah, my goodness. Well, I could go on and on, but we, we, we do have to cut it short, unfortunately, but please, yeah. uh, uh, I, I, you know, really, really dive into Howard's book. He really dives into things that we need to consider as a society. We need to address and we need to investigate within ourselves. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I thank you for spending time. Tyler, it's, it's been a real pleasure. This has been one of the best interviews I've done in a long time. I really appreciate it. Oh my goodness. Yes. All right. I love hearing that. That's, that's high praise, <laughs> especially coming from you. I really appreciate that. So um, ladies, gentlemen, and gender non-performers, till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.